Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. And so as we were traveling, you know, I was thinking about the message and it was stirring in my heart. And I honestly, I felt a sense of, of heaviness um, as I was thinking about this message. It's the, it's the kind of he- heaviness that you can only feel when you have a concern for people. When you've accepted God's call on your life to care for people and to, and, to, and to look after them and to lead them and to guide them. I think it's the kind of concern that only parents and pastors can truly appreciate. If you've ever taken people under your care and desired to see them become everything that God has designed for them to be and longs for them to be, then you'll know the kind of concern that, that, that I've felt these past few days and past few weeks. You know, when, you've, when you're shepherding people and you're raising them and you carry them in your heart, you know, and, and, and I carry that over this community along with the other pastors and leaders that we have here. We, we carry your future and, and your family and your hopes and your dreams and, and your journey is precious to us, and, and, and we want to encourage you in that journey. And we do that because besides for the fact that we just love you and want to see God working in your life, Second Peter says that, that we are to take care of God's people like those who will give an account. And I'm very aware of the fact that one day I will stand before Jesus and Jesus will say to me, how did you care for the people I gave you? How did you speak into their lives? How did you correct them when necessary? How did you love them into the, the future that I had for them? The burden of, I think, a shepherd as well as a parent is that you've lived long enough and you've had enough experience to see every situation for what it is. To kind of, isn't it amazing how when you become a parent, your prophetic gifting increases, right? You just, all of a sudden, you can see the future. With my kids, like, I've never been as prophetic since the time I became a dad because I'm constantly saying, if you climb on there, you're going to get hurt. If you play with that thing, it's going to break. Like, any parents here today, like, you're constantly, you're three steps ahead because you've lived and you know that your kids can't see the consequences of their actions, but you can. And so you're constantly speaking into their situations saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what lurks on this journey. This is what's going to happen next. And then you do your best to take those that you care for and to help them get that perspective, to understand. You may never have guessed this about me. I know it's hard to believe, but apparently I was slightly strong-willed as a child, all right? Um, I know some of you are like, that cannot be, but according to my mom, it actually is true. And so on one occasion, and this was in the 80s, anybody that grew up through the 80s, it's a miracle we made it out alive. Um, the, the vehicles, the cars, for example, had no ABS, no airbags. Um, you know, there were no regulations as to where a child could sit and no car seats. So you could just sit on the front seat. You're like four. No, sit on the front seat. And I was sitting in the front seat of the car, but I didn't want to sit. I had my belt on, but I wanted to stand. And my mom told me I couldn't stand. And, and, um, and, but re- no matter what she did, I would stand on the, on the front seat. I just wanted to stand. And at one point, she had to break suddenly, and I smashed the windscreen with my head. And uh, that was exactly what she thought would happen if I carried on standing on, the, on that seat. And I managed to break the windshield. Obviously, I'm okay. I came out with very little brain damage from that. But, uh, but I'm okay, although my wife will say I'm still a little bit hard-headed. Um, but, but she could foresee that doing what I was doing wasn't wise, was harmful, had the potential to lead me into something that was dangerous. And this is the difficult part. 
The difficult part is, is that most often people cannot see. They, they, they cannot see the wood for the trees. They, 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 they don't have the perspective to understand how their actions and the things that they pursue and the things that they long for and the things that have gripped their, their heart. They can't see the end of those things. They can't see where that, that path ends. The Bible says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in destruction. It leads to harmful places. And as parents and as leaders and as pastors, we want to lead people away from these. And oftentimes people, and, and, and i got to tell you that when I talk about people, I include myself. Just yesterday, I was, I was standing in, in, in the yard. I had this weird, it doesn't happen often, but there was this weird sequence of events where Lee was out at the ladies' event, and, and my, my mom had taken the boys out, and I was alone at home. That, like, never happens. And yesterday, I was alone at home, and I just stood out in the garden, and I was just saying, God, what, what parts of my heart have I not surrendered to you yet? Where am I still finding my significance? Where am I still looking for affirmation? What am I still looking to for meaning rather than trusting in you. God, I don't want to be proud. I want to be humble before you. I want you to speak to me, God. I just, and I just took this moment to just surrender myself again and say, God, I need you to speak to me. I need to hear your voice. I want to follow and do. My life belongs to you. But I know that for me and for us and for believers and for the church, we're often like strong-willed children like obstinate teenagers that just don't want to hear no matter what God says. And we as people have always been this way, especially the people of God. We're not exempt from having this. And this is a major theme throughout Scripture. God constantly says, if you, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your, vo your heart. Hear me when I speak. Hear me when I encourage I'm sending you the prophets. I'm sending you the pastors. I'm speaking into your life. Open your heart and receive instruction. Receive the wisdom of God. But even the people of God throughout Israel's history and throughout the church have often resisted the voice of God. Hosea 4.16 says, Israel is stubborn as a mule. This is coming through the prophets. You guys are stubborn as a mule. How can God lead him like a lamb to open pasture. All day long, God is speaking, and all day long, the people rejected God's heart. And this, this burdens the heart of God like the heart of a father. He wants to speak into our lives. And at one point, Jesus, we see one of the few places in Scripture where Jesus wept. And he wept as he came and looked over Jerusalem, and his heart his heart bled for those people, for the people that, that he, God had called because they were unwilling to hear the gospel. Luke 13, 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, you were not willing to be gathered by God, to be led by Him. God continually sends men and women, prophets and pastors, leaders and teachers to speak to people, and all day long, they reject his voice and harden their own hearts. Sometimes it happens because we've been hurt. Sometimes it happens because we've been disappointed. Sometimes it happens because, mostly it happens because we're selfish, because we've still got the residue of the effect or the influence of sin, even though we've been delivered from sin by the grace of God, we don't truly surrender all of our hearts. And, and there are things that, that, that draw us into worshiping them. 
So people stand in worship and say, oh God, speak to me. And God says, right, I'm going to speak to you now. Don't move in with your boyfriend. Huh? Huh? Sorry, God, what was that? Hey, you should get involved and build the local church. It is my calling for your life. I can't hear you, God. It's it's not that we can't hear God. It's that we don't want to hear God. It's that we've got selective hearing. If you have kids, you'll know. My kids do this all the time. Yesterday, Leo walked into the room. As he walked into the room, Lee said to me, the boys should go and shower and get ready for dinner. He literally just turned around and walked out because he didn't want to go shower. So I said, Leo, come here, come here. No, now he can't hear me. Completely deaf. But if I say, hey guys, I've got some sweets for you, all of them can miraculously hear again. It's not that we can't hear. It's that we're selective in our hearing. We don't want to hear that are instruction of God, that are ways of life. This is not about laws. This is not about regulations. This is not about the church telling you what you can and cannot do. This is about one thing and one thing only. And in fact, it's what the whole book of Revelation is really about. It's about worship. What do you worship? Worship is not just a song that you sing. Worship is who you look to for your significance, where you go to for your meaning, who you follow, who you trust, how you surrender, how you live every part of your life. That's worship. Worship is a response to the revelation of God. And in the book of Revelation, we get a revelation of Jesus. And so our response to the revelation of Jesus and his grace and his goodness is worship, impacting every part of your life. So the question isn't, are you doing things right or are you doing things wrong? The question is, what are you worshiping with your life? And that's why I wanna share a message with you this morning entitled, The Struggle of Worship. The Struggle of Worship. Jack Hayford, the editor of the New Spirit-Filled Life Bible says, worship is the core value of the book of Revelation, preceding this book's place as a manual on lost things. It really is about encouraging and inspiring the church to understand that the things that you pursue have an effect on your life. They have an effect on your life. They have an effect on your future. And that we are called not to worship the things of this world, not to find our significance and our meaning in them, but rather to pursue Jesus and to rest in the finished work of the cross, in the love of God. So today I'm covering Revelation 15 to 18, but I'm gonna do it a little differently because it communicates this simple truth. It brings into contrast whether we are worshiping God or whether we've been seduced into worshiping other things Subtly, and the power is in the subtlety. It's not like you create a shrine to money in your house. If you have one of those, that's weird. But we do it by who we trust in. Have you ever, have you ever come into worship? If you have a full bank account, and you're dancing, you're singing, you're praising, you're on fire for the Lord because your bank account's full, you have no money, and you're like, God, are you even there? Isn't it amazing how The money that is in our bank account can determine the level of our worship in church. It's a clue to where we truly find our security. God wants to move us beyond that and inspire our worship in Him, in spirit and in truth. So in Revelation 15, this is just a a short chapter. It's got eight verses. I'm just going to read these eight verses. 
But we see this next unfolding part. We know that John is still seeing this vision as God is revealing how he will ultimately defeat all evil. And we've seen the dragon come onto the scene that pursued the church and God protected her and how the devil gets cast down by Michael and his angels. He throws a tantrum, he throws a hissy fit and he begins to work through agents, through human politics, through the, through the two beasts that represent the force of human politics and, 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 and the propaganda, the, the, the influence of the culture of our world and, and how he works through these different things, through culture to, to deceive the world. And now we see one extra part as we go into it. And this judgment is coming against this part. And in, in Revelation 15 verse 1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. They're worshiping. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And, on one, of the four living, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished." God is turning this lopsided world right side up. He's finally bringing justice to the injustice of this world. He is finally setting things right, which is a day we long for and hope for and yearn for. There's worship in this moment. There's glory in this moment. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we're just going to look at the significance of this and these subsequent chapters um, this morning. Let's just pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning that right now all of us can have our hearts and our minds opened, uh, attentive, fertile soil for your word. We thank you, God, that as you speak, Lord, that you speak truth and that the truth liberates, it encourages, it uplifts, it strengthens. Thank you, God, that you deliver us this morning from, from pursuing things that will never fulfill us from running after things that will never satisfy us, but that we can come and drink, drink from the well, the living waters of Jesus, and know that we will never thirst again. Thank you, God, that you are our satisfaction, that you are our fulfillment, and you are the only one that we worship with our hearts and with our lives. We give you all the glory this morning for what you're saying to us and how you're shaping us by your Spirit. We give you the glory for this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. So let me start this morning by asking you a simple question. I want to ask you this honestly. I want you to, to answer this question honestly in your own heart. What is going to make you happy? What is going to make you happy? Like, honestly, what is it that you want? What is it that you're pursuing with your life? What is it that you're running after? What is it that you're chasing? What is it that you have looked to? to give you that sense of belonging and that sense of, of meaning and that sense of acceptance? Where, where are you finding your affirmation in this life? What do you want? Really, truthfully, what are you looking for? 
This is such an important question for us to answer. Because we can boldly proclaim here on a Sunday and elsewhere that Jesus is our everything. That He is our fulfillment. That He is our righteousness. That He is our wisdom. But is He really to you? Is Jesus truly everything to you? Is He the center of your life? And and as I said before, I'm not just asking you this question, I'm asking myself this question as well, because we can so easily stand here on a Sunday and sing a song, but in reality, we worship other things, and we look for fulfillment in other things. Asking the question, what makes me happy, or putting it another way, what do I want the most, gives us great insight. Like, what are you pursuing? What are you spending your money on? What are you spending your time on? What are you... What do you, where do you put your virtue and your sacrifice? Because we're all going to worship something. We're wired that way. You're all going to ascribe worth to something. That's ultimately where the word worship comes from. It comes from the old English word worthship, which means to ascribe worth. Understanding value is essential to the concept of worship. We ascribe value to different things every single day. We, we make decisions every day based on what we truly worship. Every day we decide what is important and what is optional, what is precious and what is disposable. And oftentimes we reveal or express our own sense of value by how we relate to things we consider valuable. And whenever we honor inferior things in our lives, money is an inferior thing. It really is. It's, it's awesome and great and, and good in the right context. Just like sex and relationships and careers and businesses and any other thing that you can mention. Possessions, they're all great servants but horrible masters. But when we begin to honor things that are inferior, we reveal an inferior self-image. What we really reveal is, is that we haven't truly come to understand our identity in Jesus, our identity in Him. Because rather than seeing ourselves as fulfilled, having all things pertaining to life and godliness, the children of God, the apple of His eye, precious and loved and accepted and affirmed in every sense of the word, We run after those things in our daily lives. We pursue them, revealing the fact that we haven't truly come to understand our identity. And and if that's you this morning, you're in good company. That's me as well. This is a journey that we're on, but Revelation seeks to, to put it all out there and show you, to show the church. Church, understand. This is God as a father saying, I don't want you to run after things that are going to harm you and are never going to fulfill you and are lying to you about what they will do in your life. We sing songs, but we don't want to serve. We say we need God, but we don't pray. We talk about his faithfulness, but we don't give. We proclaim to follow Jesus, but only until it gets uncomfortable. We've created our own form of Christianity. And wherever we go, we preach the Christian rather than the Christ. You know, there really isn't a formula to this thing. It really isn't a formula. It really isn't an equation. 
It's really not a duty or a, or a system. It's a God. It's a Father. It's a Savior. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And you know what Christianity is? Following Him. That's what it is. Hearing Him. Surrendering to Him. In essence, worship is about trust. You cannot worship God if you cannot trust Him. You cannot obey Him if you don't trust Him. You cannot follow Him if you don't trust the direction He's leading you into. When Lee and I were now in, in Manapools, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a wilderness area and it's a place where you can safari on foot. You can actually track animals on foot. And so you can do this by yourselves, which we tried once or twice, and we decided let's get a ranger and uh, somebody with a gun. And uh, so we went tracking lions on foot in Manapools this past week. And at one point we were tracking lions, looking for them, and, and there was a tuskless mother elephant with a calf close by. And I could see this mom was not happy. And by the way, those tuskless elephants are the most aggressive. They don't mock charge. They don't mess around. If they are running, you are dead. That's pretty much the formula there, okay? And so as we're walking past, our ranger is looking up there, and I can see that this mom elephant is not happy. And all of a sudden, without warning, without a sound, without doing anything, she just comes at us. And we are standing about, she started running about 25 meters. She was about 25 meters away from us, and she comes running. And Lee is behind me. I'm holding on to her, and I'm saying, just stand, just stand, because you're not going to outrun her anyways. And, uh, and I thought, the ranger surely has dealt with this before. When I saw him panic, that's when I started to feel a little bit nervous, all right? So he is, he's got his, he's got an AK-47. He is backing away, trying to load it. And we're standing there, and this mother elephant is coming. She's not going to mess around. And at the very last minute, I'm really, really glad he managed to get a shot off. So he shot a warning shot with his AK-47 over the elephant's head. And she stopped, fortunately, 10 meters short of us. I could smell the elephant at that point. Unfortunately, she turned around and walked away. And then he high-fived me. I'm like, don't high-five me, dude. You nearly killed us. Knees felt a little weak. We dropped him off. We fetched him again for our, the next part of our walk in the afternoon. And then he took us again looking for lions through what is known as adrenaline grass. I don't know if you've ever seen this yellow, tall grass. It's like reeds that grow by the side of the river. And it's lion's favorite hiding place. And we are walking through it like it's tight. It's little passages looking for the lions. But now the problem is we no longer trust this guy. That's the issue. We don't trust him. So Lee and I, he's walking ahead. We're like 10 meters back. We're like, let's just first see if he gets eaten. If he, if he survives, we'll be fine. <laughs> let's just send the bait ahead, you know. We couldn't follow him because we no longer trusted him. You won't be able to worship God. You won't be able to follow Jesus until you've come to intimately know his faithfulness. Intimately know his wisdom. Intimately know his goodness and his heart for you. The truth is, is that too many of us trust in money or trust in our career or trust in our relationship status or trust in a myriad of different things rather than God, and our choices reflect this. In Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 6 Jesus calls this outright when he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, and you can substitute money for any other thing you find your significance in. You cannot serve both those things. 
You see, the unintended result of finding your security in your money or in anything else is that you don't really have your money. Your money has you. You're worshiping at the altar of the things of this world. You're devoted to it. You'll sacrifice for it. You'll pursue it. You'll, you'll give up relationships for it because it's what you worship. And this is deception. This is Satan's swan song. This is the central figure of his fraud. This is how he gets us. He can't just come up to us and say, hey, I'm gonna deceive you right now. He has to do it in a way, in a culture, in a wave, in a stream, in momentum that slowly and subtly takes you away from the purposes of God for your life. This is how he gets the whole world drunk and leads them astray. And he tried exactly the same thing with Jesus. Matthew 4 verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and what? Their splendor. Look at the beauty. Look at the magnificence. Look at this world. All this I will give to you, he says to Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me. It's about worship. Where do you worship? Where do you kneel? Where do you bow down? Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In 1 John 2 verse 15, John writes, do not love the world. Love, when you love God, you worship him. It's, it's a part of our worship. It's our response. We love God because he loved us first. So don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot serve two masters. So this is where we struggle. Can we be honest and say that worship is the most important thing that we do as Christians? It's not a means to the end. It is the end. It is the purpose. But it's also one of the hardest things that we do as Christians. You know why it's hard? You know why there is a struggle in worship? Because we long to do it for ourselves. We struggle to surrender to the finished work of the cross. Even in our religion, we sometimes say, I can't accept grace. I have to work it out for myself. I can't just be the righteousness of God by my faith in Christ Jesus. I need to work for my righteousness. I need to be religious. I need to be more religious than anybody else. And if I do all the religious things, then God can accept me. That is, that's idolatry. That's self-righteousness, which is worse than unrighteousness. So we, we struggle with worship because we struggle to surrender. We want to worship ourselves. We want to worship our money. We want to worship the world. We want to worship significance and different things. So you might be asking, how does this relate to Revelation 15 and everything we just read about the plagues and all the other things that are happening there? In Revelation 15, we have God preparing this final wave of judgment. And what he is about to judge is the world system that Satan has created and, and spurred on and manufactured in order to draw your worship away from God. And so we see God dealing decisively with a system that has deceived the nations. These bowls of judgment are carried out by seven angels with a royal decree, and they're about to execute justice upon the earth. They're dressed in white, symbolizing the righteousness of God's judgment here. And whenever we talk about judgment or wrath, this is uncomfortable for us but it's so necessary. It's so necessary to know that God is just and that he's righteous and, and, and that he's true. And it also gives us hope because it gives us a bigger picture of the gospel. Without the wrath of God, why did Jesus die? Why would there be a cross? 
Richard Niebuhr, one of the most influential American theologians of the 20th century, once described the message of the ultra-liberal Christian church by saying, it's a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We have to understand the wrath of God so that we can understand what we've been saved from, what God has delivered us from. And so here in Revelation 15, the church rejoices at the wrath of God, at the justice of God. And as God steps in to turn this lopsided world right side up. And there's a beautiful key here into where their worship stems from. It tells us that they're standing by a sea of glass mingled with fire. And I don't have time to go into the different things that is represented in heaven as the pulpit and the table of the Lord. And, 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 and this here, though, the baptism, it re- represents the baptism, the, the, this glass mingled with fire, the sea of glass, it represents baptism. So the church stands at the baptismal waters worshiping Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that when you put your faith in Christ, you were baptized into his death, the death he died by the wrath of God. The death he died as he paid the price for our sin. And then we are resurrected with him into the newness of life where there is no longer any condemnation. So it would be like us setting up the baptismal pool here and we all gather around it and we worship because we go, thank you, Jesus, because you went through death for us. We have been made alive with Christ. We, can, we, we know God did not, does not desire for anyone to suffer judgment or his wrath. He has specifically sent his son to rescue us from that. And when you realize that you are the one, you know, it's one thing to say Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but there comes a moment where you realize He died for me. It's a personal thing now. That's when you'll begin to worship. That's when you'll begin to to worship God. So he has saved us, and the church stands at the baptismal waters worshiping God. We don't exclude God's wrath from our theology. We worship him because we understand he made a way for us to be saved from it, and we rejoice at the overturning of injustice. And here there's this beautiful picture. So the, the church is standing around the, the baptismal waters and they are worshiping God and they begin to sing the song of Moses. And the song of Moses is what we see in Exodus 32 when God led the people through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, delivering them from the world system represented by Egypt and Pharaoh, the kings of the world system that oppressed them. God delivers them. They baptize through the waters. They stand on the other side and they sing glory to God. We've been delivered. They sing the song of Moses. The church in heaven sings the same song. They begin to sing the song of Moses, which is the song of the Lamb, and it represents the fact that we have been delivered from Egypt and the judgment that is to befall the world system. That judgment is what happens in chapter 16, and I'm not going to read all of it today, but there are seven bowls of judgment that are poured out that once again, sticking with the theme of deliverance from Egypt, mimic the plagues that were poured out on Egypt in order to show people, to deliver God's people and to reveal God as the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Each judgment and shaking and outpouring still being an opportunity for people to repent. 
So the first bowl is poured out and painful sores appear on people's bodies. And the second one, every living thing in the ocean dies and it turns to blood. And the third one, all the rivers and the fresh water in the world turns to blood. And it's kind of a poetic thing where they begin to worship God saying they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. God is giving them a warning that justice for the injustice is arriving. The fourth one, the sun intensifies and there's a scorching heat and people begin to curse God. The fifth one, they're all plunged into darkness. The sixth bowl shows armies crossing the Euphrates from the east, which for the Roman Empire and those living in those spaces, the the Parthians were harassing them from the east. And this was a common concept that the armies that will defeat us could come from the east. And now these armies walk in, but they represent demonic forces that are going to gather in the valley of of Armageddon or Megiddo. and, And And some say this is a literal battle that will take place in that space. But more than that, it represents the final stand and the final conflict and the final judgment of Christ over the forces of evil and all the kings that align themselves with evil. That's the sixth deal. The seventh bowl is then, or the sixth bowl, the seventh bowl produces a massive earthquake like the earth has never seen and hailstones that destroy every city and island and mountain on earth And this is the fall of Egypt. This is the fall of Babylon. This is the fall of the world system and its economy and and everything that it used to, to draw people away. And sadly, like we've seen in Revelation so many times, again, in Revelation, for those of you that are visiting, many people want to make this a neat timeline, like that's going to happen, then that's going to happen, then that's going to happen. That's not how Revelation works. It's not a neat timeline. This is an intensification of things we've already seen. It just shows how it will intensify and how God continually gives people still the opportunity to repent. But in Revelation 16 verse 9, it shows us the hardened hearts of humanity who have decided to resist God no matter what. It tells us they did not repent and give Him glory. It's about worship. They didn't want to worship God. Even when they witness His power, they don't want to worship. They've made that decision. They refuse to acknowledge Him. In chapter 17, what John does is he creates something like a caricature. I don't know if you've ever opened up a newspaper and seen how political cartoonists would would take a political figure or even a country and personify it and then draw it and, and kind of amplify certain characteristics almost in a comical, satirical kind of way. And just in case you don't get who it is, they'll even write the name on it. That's essentially what we see in Revelation 17. God is taking this world system that has deceived so many and led so many away, and he gives us a picture of what it actually looks like. What has deceived the world? What has drawn our worship away from him? I'm going to read these six verses to you in Revelation 17, verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away into the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. We've seen this beast before. This is the dragon. This is Satan working through political power. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. 
And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this is this image of of the world system. This is Egypt. This is Sodom. This is Babylon. This is the world culture. And it's, she is drunk on the abominations of, of evil and, and of the blood of the saints persecuting the church, riding in on the dragon himself, carried along. Culture is often intended to lead you away from God. And she's described as the mother of prostitutes, and it speaks about sexual immorality. And this is something we looked at a few weeks ago when we said that sexual immorality and unfaithfulness, infidelity, is used throughout the Scripture, through all the prophets, as a symbol or a metaphor for people who refuse to worship their God, who are unfaithful, who break the covenant that God had. And so they, they break the covenant and they pursue Instead, a harlot or a prostitute. They're unfaithful in their hearts. Symbolizing giving your fealty or your allegiance or your worship to anyone else but God. In this, it's sexual immorality. The kings of the earth gave their allegiance to this prostitute. They became drunk with her, not in sexual immorality, but in worship. It's about worship, not just about the acts. The acts are just the outworking. It's just the symptoms of the disease. The issue is about what you worship. And this is deception. This is, this is exactly what a prostitute is like. Because the worst thing that a prostitute does is not sleeping with strangers. The worst thing that a prostitute does is promising you, promising the world what they want. What do people want? They want connection. They want meaning. They want love. And so a prostitute says, come and pay me, and I will give you the, the, the connection and the love that you want. But it's a false promise. It doesn't satisfy. If anything, it leaves you more empty. It's a cheap substitute for true commitment and true sacrifice and true love. And that is exactly that. The, the world system could not be described more aptly than that. It will promise you riches. It will promise you wealth. It will promise you meaning. It will promise you love. It will promise you connection. It will promise you community. It will leave you with none. Except brokenness. More broken than you were before. It lures you. It seduces you. Proverbs 5 and six and seven speaks about do not go, do not follow the seduction of the temptress. Her home, her door leads to Sheol, to death. It's the same thing. Do not love the world. It will never deliver on its promises. This is how Satan deceives the world into false worship through the great prostitute. Promises so much, beautifully arrayed. The pearls and the gold and, the, and, and, and all the beautiful satins, but she is drinking a cup full of impurities, full of sewage. It's putrid and it's, and it's harmful and she opposes the people of God. This also gives us insight as to why God just absolutely hates divorce, why he absolutely hates adultery and infidelity because it symbolizes everything that is wrong with our world rather than than holding fast to covenant, 
We run after our lusts. And so ultimately what God does, the hopeful, beautiful, encouraging picture of Revelation 17, God deals with the world system. It falls, it's dealt with, it's overturned to deceive the people no more. And chapter 18 then describes the fall. In Revelation 18 verse 9, it says, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Church, we cannot worship God and money. We cannot worship God and sex. We cannot worship God and comfort. We cannot worship God and ourselves at the same time. Revelation 18, 4. God says, I heard, it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. We use the word church in our English language, which comes from the German word kirsch. But the original word in Hebrew was ekklesia. The called out ones. It was used the first time in that context when God again brought Egypt out or brought Israel out of Egypt, out of the world system. They were called out ones, the congregation in the wilderness. We are the ones that are called out from the world, not to partake in her lusts, not to look for our meaning, not to worship her, not to drink from her cup. But we are the bride of Christ. And here the contrast of the great prostitute is drawn between the great prostitute and the woman that we saw earlier on in Revelation 13, adorned with the brilliance of the sun, the, the one through whom God brought the Messiah, the one whom God loves and cherishes and protects and, and, and adores. That's who we are, church. We're of the bride. We're not of the prostitute. We worship Jesus. We wait for our heavenly bridegroom as he, as he prepares us for the wedding feast. And we see this in Revelation 9, and I just want to read this from verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. That's us. It was granted to her, granted to her, imputed righteousness, to clothe herself in, with fine linen, bright and pure. Our righteousness is not of ourselves. It's of Jesus and what He has done for us. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
Even if you're tempted to worship religion, to worship angels, to worship piety, to worship all these things, don't do that. That's as bad as worshiping the prostitute. We worship God and Him alone. It's about worship. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The contrast is drawn here. There's there's an image that's so bold that we can't shake it. We can worship the prostitute and drink of her lusts and run after her. And you're like, I don't do that. But we do when we look for our fulfillment in this world. Or instead, we can be the ones who say, I have trusted in Jesus. I look to him for fulfillment. And can I be real with you this morning? Sometimes I feel unfulfilled. Sometimes I feel discouraged. Sometimes I feel like I'm not enough. Sometimes I feel like there's things that I lack. But what maturity looks like in the, in the Christian sense, in the spiritual sense, is that I don't base my faith on what I feel. I base my faith in the finished work of the cross. So what do I do as a response? I preach the gospel to myself every day. Because in this world, you might say, that sounds great, that sounds holy, that sounds like good theology, but how does it impact me daily? How does it impact how I live my life? Because I'm still tempted, I still struggle, I still lust, I still have issues. I face hardship and injustice, and I have questions that God hasn't answered. What do I do in these situations? Well, that's exactly what these chapters are telling us. Our response is to worship. That's how we overcome. That's how we declare the goodness of God over our lives. That's how we live in truth, by speaking and declaring and calling out the faithfulness of God's nature and character and and His love and His goodness. And as we do that, just like we sang this morning, our perspective begins to shift. Our hearts begin to realign themselves with with our Father, with our Creator. And we are in that way delivered from the influence of this world. We're in that way we become, as we behold Him face to face, we are transformed into the glory of His image as by the Holy Spirit. That's how we overcome. So I ask you again this morning, church, what makes you happy? What are you pursuing in life? What is that one thing that, if I could just get that, my life will be fine? The world promises you happiness, but it brings the opposite. Forget everything else. Forget the religion, forget the duties, forget the formulas. Just one single thing is important. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that He loves you and do you love Him in return? Are you cultivating your walk and your relationship with Jesus. As a church, we want to humble ourselves before God. We want to to hear His voice. Speak, God. We're listening. We want Him to lead us and to shape us because we belong to Him. We are God's people, His precious possession. We are His children And we will worship him for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Won't you stand with me this morning as we pray?